we're slightly above everybody else on the intellectual <laughs> scale, I think. Altitude sickness is no joke. Once it gets below zero, it's cold. There are a lot less sportsmen now than there were, say, 20 years ago. You're actually, you were used as a pawn okay. in our game to figure out what it was that we were doing wrong. You know, at that point, we didn't have one great tent. Like, we had one good tent and one not good tent. <laughs> yeah. Wind was just whipping. Uh, there was, like, snow BBs <laughs> just, like, pelting the face. <laughs> All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Outdoors Podcast. I'm AJ Eads, your host. And with me tonight is my guest, Chris Connick. Chris is a fly fishing guide, owner of Morning Dew Fishing Company in Southwest Florida, Chris and I met at a fly shop that is, I know, kind of true to both of our hearts and dear to both of us. Uh, you've got a career that really started in corporate America and then has moved in the opposite direction. You now have your own fly fishing guiding service and company. Uh, what kind of you know put, pulled you away from your career in the legal world and kind of put you down this path towards being a, a full-time guide? Man, so, uh, and yeah, thanks for having me on, AJ. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, should be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I get this question a lot from clients. Um, you know, I'm pretty open and honest about it. Um, you know, I, I think it's something that kind of sets me apart too, because people kind of say, Oh, this guy you know, used to practice law. Um, you know, what's he doing now? Uh, you know, he, he's being a fishing guide and, you know, for me, the decision was pretty easy. Um, uh, and it kind of comes down to like, you can invest your money in things and you can invest your time in things. Um, I do have a bunch of money tied up in going to law school um, and practice law for five years. Um, made a lot of great relationships, learned a ton from it, um, have a much better understanding of just kind of how um, the world works. Um, and that's a, a good thing, you know, not to be naive about things. But, uh, you know, for me, you know, time is the biggest investment you can ever make in anything. And I have way more time invested into what I'm doing now um, than I ever did practicing law or working in corporate America. Um, and the, the biggest event for me you know, that led, led me back to this. So I, I guided for five years before I even went to law school um, and then kind of did it off and on for um, 10 summers out in Idaho from 2006 to 2020. So total, total of 10 summers out there. So Chris, let's take a quick, quick break there. Cause how did you start getting your, you know, how'd you get your foot in the door at the lodge out in Southeast Idaho? How did that career kind of get started there? So we had a family friend that had a place in Driggs, Idaho, which if you haven't been, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's on the Western edge of the, um, Grand Tetons. Um, it's on the good side of the Grand Tetons. Jackson Hole's amazing, but the, the West side of the Tetons is absolutely incredible. Um, so we had a free place to stay out there and that's really as simple as it was. It was a, a guy that my dad, uh, swam with, um, you know, they, I think they met through my uncle who was my godfather and they just, you know, they, they swam laps together at, you know, whatever county pool and, you know, whatever, uh, became friends. And, uh, you know, we call him uncle Rick. He's not my uncle. Uh, he's a lifelong bachelor. I mean, right. the guy's an absolute character. Uh, but we had a free place to stay out there. So we started doing family or it was, we do like one family vacation, my whole family, uh, mom, dad, sisters, myself, um, usually down in Florida. Um, and then my mom and sisters would do their own one vacation and my dad and I would do something and it always ended up being some kind of trout fishing thing. 
Um, so we started going out there and, uh, I think I was 13 years old. It was 1999. So I was, yeah, I would have turned 14 that year. And, uh, we floated the river with a guy named Bill Danford and, uh, I don't remember it, but apparently at the end of the day, I caught a really nice fish right like at the takeout, which funny enough, the takeout is the same last name as mine, uh, which like, I mean, talk about all the coincidences in the world. Um, like the, the literal name of the take and people, oh, do you own the valley after I got the job out there? But anyway, yeah, caught this really nice brown trout, like 20 inch brown on a fly eye tide, you know, as we're pretty much going into the takeout. Like, I mean, stuff right. dreams are made out of. And, uh, I, I don't remember it, but I, apparently I told my dad after that, I said, I want to be a fishing guide someday. And I was 13 years old at the time. Yeah. It was just one of those like magical days, you know, I mean, people talk about the best days of fishing they ever have. I mean, that's one that I'll remember forever. You know, we, we both, that's awesome. yeah, we both just hammered fish and, you know, you put the, the cherry on top with the big fish at the, you know right as you're going into the takeout. I mean, you couldn't draw up a better day. You know, if I'm that guide, you know, build a guide, you know, you can't draw it up better than that. You know, you got a father, son, right. the kid catches a big fish on his last cast. Like, I mean, that's it right there. Like, that's why you do it. Um, and ultimately like, yeah. So flash forward number of years, uh, my father unfortunately passed away of prostate cancer. So I always tell fellas, you know, get checked. He was 60 years old, way too young. Um, and that was kind of, uh, the impetus for, uh, Becca, my wife and I, to, you know, fiance at the time, uh, to make some, you know, kind of big life changes and kind of, you know, make some choices for lifestyle instead of career. Um, uh, you know, both are very important. Um, I do, I will never like knock somebody if they choose career, um, over lifestyle, you know, uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, uh. Do you think that there's a, I mean, you've kind of found a mesh though, right? I mean, I would say, I mean, you're not scraping the barrel and trying to find pennies to, you know, pay for things. I would right. imagine. Well, it helps to have a sugar mama. Um, so <laughs> I appreciate, uh, my wife, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Becca's fantastic. I got to chat with her a little yeah. bit and she seems like really fantastic. And she's sitting here and she'll probably join us, uh, when we talk about some kind of the camper van life kind of stuff here towards cool. the end. Um, whenever you want to get into that, but, um, no, I mean, that, it, so that's something that, yeah, when the last few years that I worked at the lodge, the last three, um, I was managing the fly shop out there. So I was kind of in charge of hiring and kind of onboarding and bringing on new people. And, um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, people that are thinking about going to law school or getting into, into guiding, or just, they want to get a job at a fly shop or whatever, um, I've had quite a few people like kind of say, Oh, you should talk to Chris about this. And yeah, you know, the number one thing that I think like looking back, I'm 36 now and you know, we have a, a kid who's uh, going to be 19 months old later this month. Um, the number one thing that I tell people and that I wish I would have realized way back when uh, is you've got to have a, a, whatever you're doing, you have to have a plan to make it financially work for you. So you were saying before we got on, um, yeah, your wife's very frugal. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that opens up a lot of doors for you. Uh, like if you know you have expensive tastes, then, you know, you, you have to own that or change your taste. Uh, so, you know, I mean, for, for us, sage advice, sage I, advice. I, I mean, it's just, it, it's the way it is, you know, I mean, we, you know, 
uh, and you you chose to or are choosing to, and we did choose to live in a van down by the river, for lack of a better term. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it wasn't. It was something that we chose to do, and we had the financial means to be able to do it. Um, so you know, I think anytime somebody is you know going to maybe do something that's kind of a little off the wall, or you know. Maybe not the the path that um, you know everyone thinks is kind of the normal path, whatever that is anymore. Um, you've got to have the financial means to do it, uh, and it doesn't mean you need to have a million bucks saved up. It just means you have to have a plan. Um, yeah. I'll 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 mention it tonight. My wife, who like I said, is a really frugal person and and does really you know a great job with her money. Uh, is tending bar tonight at a restaurant and she's kind of physically beat up from the job. They do handshake and margaritas yep. and it's kind of a physical bartending job. She was sore, didn't really want to go. She's there, you know, making her money, kind of putting it aside, making sure that she's ready to go for our trip and we can do what we need to do. Yep. So kudos to my wife. And like you said, it's not millions of dollars. It's not even hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's just like every little couple hundred bucks here or there you know, wisely planned for makes a huge difference. So for all those people out there that are thinking about something like this, you don't have to have truckloads of money to make it happen, but you do have to be smart about the decisions you make and the plans that you kind of look towards. Yeah. No, I, and it kind of along those lines and kind of what we were getting at uh, before we got on, um, I, I think one of the more dangerous things you can do in life is just in general, optimize your life for comfort. Um, that's a really, really tough thing. Uh, it, it sounds good. It, 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 it sounds comfortable, but when you optimize for comfort, you leave so much on the table. Uh, you know, it's like if you're folding pocket aces every time, like what, what do you, eventually you got to play a hand and taking the easy road. Uh, yeah, it, it's there. It's fine. You know, I mean, and for some people, maybe that's the right path, but, uh, it's just, there's so much interesting stuff out there to do. And when you never take a risk, you, you never find out what's out there beyond your comfort zone. And, you know, maybe, you know, what you're really like and what you're really capable of and what's really interesting to you. Yeah. yeah I think it's really, you know, I'm, I'm always excited when I meet people that take, the opportunity to move somewhere. And, you know, one of the challenges that I always kind of been faced with or what I always try to tell people if they're young is like either A, go live somewhere completely different than where you grew up. I made the mistake. I played football in college and I was, you know, recruited by a few small schools, but I could have walked on at a number of places. And I should have like walked on at the University of Hawaii. Oh. Like, could have figured it out, maybe gotten a scholarship somewhere down the road, whatever. It wasn't that great. But, uh, it, you know, why not take a shot at somewhere completely amazing or go to Southwest Florida or go somewhere like that? That would have been an amazing place to, you know, to hang out. My uh, A buddy of mine had an opportunity to go play baseball at Pepperdine University, which is in Malibu, California. Yep, on the beach. Yep. Like, not the worst <laughs> place to go to college and play baseball <laughs> overlooking the ocean. Uh and he kind of took a different path, and that's cool. It, it worked out well for him. He ended up as a professional baseball player. But, um, you know, one of the pieces of advice I give kids is like, hey, try to go live somewhere completely different than where you grew up. And B, if you can go live in New York City or San Francisco or L.A. and do it broke when you're young, mm -hmm. 
then you'll never be afraid of just about anything else because you'll be like, well, if I can make it there, then I can just about handle most places. Now, it's not going to be the Everglades. It's not going to be Alaska. It's a completely different type of environment. But uh, if you can kind of figure out how to be uncomfortable early to your point and not just settle into the cozy, warm, comfortable spot, you're going to live a much more fulfilling, much more enriching life. I think so. And I'd even take what you're saying one step further. Like move to some place once in your life. You can do it with your significant other, but move to some place once in your life where you don't know anybody. And whether it's when you're going to college or your first job out of college or whatever, because you find out who you are when you do that. You know, you're... You're free of all of, you know, and uh, St. Louis is bad about this in particular, but you're free of all the perceptions of, oh, this is who this person was in high school or, you know, whatever. St. Louis is particularly yeah. bad about that. And, you know, small towns are kind of kind of that way. And, uh, I don't know, St. Louis, it's good and bad. I think it's mostly bad uh, personally, but, um, you know, yeah. you, you really get to know yourself when you move. And that, I did that. Um, it was uh, my second job when I was practicing law, I moved to Houston, Texas. My cousin was there. I slept on his couch for like two months until I found an apartment. I had a job, you know, I moved there. I had a job, but, um, I didn't really know anybody. Um, when I moved there, you know, other than my cousin and he, I mean, he did it one more than I did. He took a job. uh, He's a swim coach and, uh, you know, took a job on a whim, um, got offered a job for a nationally ranked swim team. And, uh, he's, been their interim head coach a couple of times and their head coach uh he, he doesn't want to be the head coach he, he doesn't it's it's, right. it's not him he 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 doesn't like to anyway but you know i i look at him as an inspiration and you know and i've told his story a number of times you know i mean he went to a place where he literally knew no one um he got offered a job because of his skill set and competency and moved there and um you know has never looked back uh, and it's not thrived. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's great advice. Yeah. It's great advice because you really, I, I really like the way the perspective that you put on it, Chris, of it'll a kind of show you who you really are, right? Because it, it will kind of force you to come to grips with, you don't have anybody that you can just lean into for convenience sake or whatever. Like you've got to make all the decisions of who you're going to hang out with and who you're going to spend your time with and who you're going to be for those people. Sure. Uh, I think that's a really great piece of advice. I think that's that's good self awareness yep, stuff. Yep. Uh, uh, the the older. Yeah. So so let's go ahead. I was gonna say, and we can get yeah back into kind of yeah the, the guiding stuff and that yeah kind of the actual top of the of the podcast. But uh, you know, the older I get, the more I value people that are self aware. Um, and we can just leave that at that. I I think that's a tremendous attribute that you know is kind of getting lost in today's world. I think there's also been, and I mean, you know, not to put, you know, a uh, uh, point of finger or anything, but I think for a, a, a lot of our parents' generation, there was a dream of what America was supposed mm-hmm. to be. And I think a lot of that was sitting at a desk somewhere, making a really good salary, having great safety and, and being taken care of by the company that you worked really hard yep. for. You're going to put in your 30 years and get a pension and a 401k and retire well and, yep. you know, move to the coast. Which the funny part is exactly how it worked out for my parents. They had a great career, bought a boat, moved to the coast. Everything worked out really well and had a great life. So I get why that was the dream. 
But what it what it really did, I think, for a lot of people was push them away from exciting, great, fulfilling careers, whether it be in the trades, whether it be in outdoor industries, whether it be in all kinds of other directions, uh, being a surfing instructor in Florida, whatever it is. Uh, there's a lot of value in people that are really great at those jobs, really great as chefs or whatever it may right. be. So I'm always fascinated by people that take that turn and actually make that. And, you know, it sounds like you had, you know, a, a really kind of strong reason to move in that direction. Uh, what kind of, you know, things did you encounter in making that first move and kind of taking that career on full time, what were some of the things that maybe were unexpected in being a full time guide, or what were some of the things that really kind of surprised you as man, this is awesome, this is a great career? Well, so I, I think the first thing, and I, so the company that I worked for, the lodge that I worked for out in Idaho, um, they really do. It's Southwark Lodge. Um, it, it's a, a phenomenal operation. Um, it's now owned by Jimmy Kimmel and managed by Oliver White. And uh, the outfitting manager is actually my friend Zach, who I was fishing with today. Um, it, it is, in my opinion, it's the best lodge in the country. Um, and I just happen to get a job there, you know. <laughs> it's like, you know, 16 years ago um, now working in the fly shop. So the way that they go about things when they onboard new guides, uh, and this may anger some people, uh, but uh, guide school is the biggest crock of shit that is out there in the fishing industry. Um, people think that you can spend. I've heard that across the board. You're not, you're not, and uh, even the people you're not saying it, something a lot of other people aren't even saying. Even the people that run them, they know it. You know, it's a moneymaker for the companies that offer it. And you know, great, you know, whatever. Um, but the company that I worked for, um, and Zach, who I was fishing with today and who for, I guess, 2019 through, or 2018 through 2020, we were running kind of the fishing side of things together out there. We both came up through this where you had to work in the fly shop and the people that really killed it out there were the ones that, you know, if mulch needed to be moved down at the lodge, you know, yeah, it was the ones that volunteered for that. And uh, yeah, so you worked in the fly shop, you would work in the restaurant. Uh, they wanted to see how you were with with customers. And that's something that I think a lot of people that get into guiding, especially younger kids nowadays, uh, they don't necessarily realize, and this is something I always try to impress upon people, is you are spending time with people that are choosing to spend their money, not only their money, but their time with us. And you need to make that a top-notch experience. So, you know, when I got into it, I had to work in the fly shop for two years so they could see what I was, you know, one, I could prove I was competent, you know, you know, not necessarily, it doesn't really matter if I can fish or not, but, it, you know, I learned how to row a boat out there. Uh, I learned how to interact with clients. Uh, I learned how to ask questions the right way, kind of, read people. Um, but to get back to your question, you know, things that surprise you, you, and I, I think one of the biggest, uh, you know, biggest thorns in the side of like a young fishing guide is people suck at fishing. Um, and I never expect excellence out of my clients, any client. I learned that on my, like a mile into my first float trip with clients is, you right. know, I, cause a lot of my time I'd been taking friends fishing who are awesome at fishing way better than I was at the time. And, you know, so I'm used to like just seeing people catch fish after fish, you know, a fish eats a dry fly. They, they hit it, they catch it. It's great. 
you know, clients know when to set all yes. the, how to mend all the things. You don't have to tell them anything. You know, clients they miss fish all the time, and you know, so one of the biggest things that you you know you got to learn like very very quickly is you can't expect these people to fish like you do. That's why they're paying you. And the analogy I always make is, you know, let's say I've got a client that uh, let's uh, pick any job for me. You know. Contractor. Contractor. Okay. Yeah. So let's say they're a general contractor. I, if I go dry, try to do my client's job, you know, today's Friday. If I go try to do my general contractor his job on Monday, I'm going to look like such an idiot, you know. And that's the analogy I always make: is you can't expect excellence out of these people. And what I tell clients at, at the beginning of every day is, I all I ask is you try hard and don't get down on yourself. Um, you know, just don't get in the tank. Uh, yeah, that's all I ask of people is just put in the effort. And that's something I learned over time. You know, I used to be really, really a lot more intense about it. And like, you know, everybody had to catch, you know, X number of fish. And, you know, we had to get a big one and this, that, and the other. But, yeah, the, the more I do it, the more I realize, um, and we can get into the salt stuff, but, you know, trout in particular, um, they just want a good time. You know, it, what the, the experience that we were offering out there, it's a float trip, which there's just something about putting a boat in the water and floating down a river. Um, you know, if you like beers, beers taste better on the water. I don't know what it is, but they do. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> um, and, you know, you're, you're floating through, you know, and I mean, it's an amalgamation of Idaho public land and BLM land and national forest and it's a gorgeous canyon and the only way to see it is by boat um and i mean there's nothing i mean you know there's other places you know that are similar but you know they're all equally awesome uh it's yeah. it's really <clears throat> excuse me it's really cool in that like for example if you go to some of the most beautiful national parks in the country you're going to see millions of people yeah. right i mean if you go to yosemite and you walk through the valley you go to, you know, the base of Half Dome, the base of Al Cap, you're going to see tens of thousands of people on the pathways around you. And that's going to be true at most of the big national parks. Yep. There are still some places in the country that are still some of the most beautiful, serene, you know, well-kept places because they're only accessible in very kind of small places to a limited group of people. And I don't mean that they're kept to a limited group of people. I Some just mean that are, only so though. many people are going to show up there yeah. and, and get on those boats. And so uh, I, I believe I 100% understand the appeal of I've have gone on some of those floats in some beautiful places. I fished with a buddy of mine uh, that's been on the podcast, James from about trout on the San Juan okay. in New Mexico nice. last year. Just the day itself, if we wouldn't have caught a bunch of fish, it would have been an absolutely incredible day. Just the scenery, the beautiful water, the the boat, the whole experience of it was just incredible. Sure. So I, I completely understand where you're coming from when it comes to, and I mean, I'm just looking at photos of the South Fork Lodge. It's absolutely stunning. I mean, the, the <laughs> it lodge is. itself, yep. the river, the valley, it's in nuts. Yep. It's beautiful. Yep. And what, what Oliver and Jimmy have put into that place too, I mean, they took it from a 10 and pushed it to an 11. And I didn't think it could be done, but they did. And, you know, I, I could have stayed on and worked with them, but um, yeah, we were just re we were ready for a change. Uh and, you know, that kind of came at the end of 2020 
Um, it just seemed like a nice round number. It was my 10th summer being out there and 10 seemed like a good number to kind of, kind of go do something different. We'd spent two winters out there, uh, realized that wasn't for us. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, that's, uh, you know, St. Louis winters are tough enough. Um, and that's, uh, you know, any young guy, guy or gal that's heading out West to, uh, you know, to be a trout guide in the summer, you got to remember what come comes from November through March. And that's, uh, you know, it's an easy thing to do when you're on, you know, when you're still on your parents' payroll and going to college in the summer and you can go do your 50 days. And I did that, you know, I, I did that and I did full time. Um, and then I managed a, a fly shop out there to, you know, the, the fly shop at the lodge. So yeah, I saw it from kind of all different angles. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, but the, the thing you gotta, you gotta keep in mind and, uh, you know, it is you gotta figure out what you're going to do from November to March and not lose your mind. Uh, <laughs> yeah. because it's a, it's a, it's a tough thing out there out West. Um, you know, they, they've, uh, lots of different places have tried to kind of extend the shoulder se- season, but, uh, you know, the reason people are going out there is they want to, they want to see fish eat dry flies while they're wearing flip-flops and shorts. Now, it's, yeah, but it is, I mean, it, it's, it, you know, yep. That, that makes sense. Yeah. So, so moving down into Southwest Florida, what made you guys choose that part of the state? What made you guys choose to kind of transition? Because going from trout to saltwater is not the easiest thing in the world, nope. right? And it's a completely different skill set, completely different landscape. The whole thing's, you know, it's almost like a completely different sport in a, in a number of ways or activity. Sure. Uh, what kind of prompted that transition and how did you decide where you wanted to go? Man, so I can go on on this question for a long time. Um, the We were the decision we made to move where we moved um, and when we did it and everything was very, very intentional. Um, I guess at at its most basic, uh, we got sick of the cold. Uh, My wife is from Texas. Um, She spent uh, a good part of her childhood living in Trinidad, like Trinidad and Tobago. Um, So she, yeah, exactly. So, you know, so, you know, the ocean and, and, warm sun and all that is kind of, you know, it, it, that's what she knows. And I've never been one for winter. Um, you know, we have some great memories from the couple of winters that we spent out in Idaho. Uh, but, uh, you know, ultimately it was okay. Wh- where can we go live and not have to deal with winter? So that was the first question. Second question is, uh, I'm not going to go back to doing the kind of job that I was doing before. So, that brings some kind of like baggage with it is like, okay, like we met in Houston, Texas. We both like Houston. Uh, we both like Austin. Uh, both of those places are unfortunately very expensive to live in. Uh, so it's like, okay, you know, we can move back to one of those places, but you know, here's what our kind of number is in terms of like, if we're going to buy a house and we're going to start a family and, and this, that, and the other. And like, you know, they're both places that both of us have lived and we kind of know where we would want to live. And it's like kind of one of those things, like, you know, yeah, if you move to uh man, I'll, I'll probably bungle this, but um, yeah, 
you don't move to San Francisco, you know, move to San Francisco in air quotes and live in Fresno or whatever. You know, if you move to San Francisco, you move to San Francisco, you know? So it's like, if we're to move back to Austin, we know where we want to live in Austin. You know, we're not going to live in Round Rock or, you know, we're not going to, you know, live 20 miles south of town or whatever. We, and that sort of stuff comes with money. So, you know, we kind of looked at, and the same kind of applied to Houston too. And then, you know, I'm thinking too, okay, you know, there's places I love to fish in Texas, but like, I don't want to live in Port Aransas or Corpus Christi or like South Padre because they pose a lot of the same challenges that, um, yeah, that we encountered in Idaho where housing's expensive. They're tough to get to. Uh, the weather is not really super nice a lot of the year. Um, like the Texas coast is, you know, there's some beautiful parts of it. Temperamental. Yeah, it's temperamental. And it's just kind of, I don't know, you know, it, it it's nice when it's nice. But, uh, you know, about eight months out of the year, it's not super nice. And it gets busy and crowded. So anyway, so we kind of just kept looking at places. And, you know, we did... Um, yeah, when we both left our jobs in, when we were living in Texas um, and we were traveling around in our tiny little teardrop trailer, we left from Houston, went all the way down to Key West and then up the East Coast from there. And we both just really enjoyed We stopped in, in Florida. We stopped in, uh, in the Panhandle and then the Nature Coast, so like Homosassa, Crystal River. Um, we skipped actually through Southwest Florida where we live now, you know, Fort Myers and Naples went down to the keys, but I, um, I'd been to Sanibel and Captiva a number of times growing up and, you know, we kind of looked at like, we literally looked at weather patterns and like looked at weather and I'm not kidding you. Like we looked at like, you know, what's the average temperature in January? You know, I mean, it's February 10th yeah. now. Yeah. We looked at what's the average temperature in January and you know, it's, lows in the mid fifties and highs in the mid seventies, you know, I mean, that's average. So you get swings on both sides of it. Uh, And we were like, Oh, that sounds nice. And uh, you know, we looked at, um, okay, what's the closest Southwest airport. You know, we live 15 minutes from the Southwest airport here now, Fort Myers airport. Uh, That's important to us because my family's in St. Louis, Becca's family's in Texas. So it's really easy. Uh, Becca's mom is actually here right now. Uh, direct flight from Dallas. Uh, yeah, we're going up to yeah. Tiva to stay, you know, hang out with a bunch of my college friends this weekend. Direct flight from Dallas for you know, grandma to come down and hang out with our little one. Super easy. My mom's done the same thing. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of all and you know, when I tell you know, when I talk to people about, you know, okay, they want to make a career change or they want to do this, like these are the kind of like practical things you have to look at. It's not just you know, I mean, the glitz and the glam and the Instagram pics and all that, I mean, you know, that is what it is. But if you're going to make it work, you got to look at the stuff. It's going to you know, be a stick in the mud on you, you know, and it's all these sorts of things. You know, we and we had to find a place where we could afford to buy a house. Uh, yeah, it, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, once we get past that, you know, then we're talking about, OK, you know, what does the fishing look like? Um and here in Southwest Florida, uh, 98% of the fishing is spin fishing here, uh, spin or bait, um, you know, and yeah, so I kind of saw an opportunity. It's like, I, I have friends that guide in the keys, um, 
And the Keys, again, pose a lot of the same challenges as Idaho. Um, the climate kind of sucks. Um, it, like, it, have you been to the Keys before? Yeah, have you- but I went on an absolutely gorgeous couple of you know weeks in prime of January where we just struck it right. Yeah, where so you haven't be. been there in July. And- <laughs> no, 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 no. So in July in the Keys, the wind stops blowing and it's miserable. Uh, and- That's what it's like where my parents live in South Carolina, yep. and it's just hot and there's bugs and yep. it's humid and it's just hard. Yep, yep exactly. Uh, so. And it's a very demanding fishery down there. It's uh, it's oversaturated. The fish are challenging. The people you're guiding around are challenging. So we started looking, you know, a little bit up the coast, and initially kind of settled on the area around like Pine Island Sound. Which so Pine Island Sound is you have Florida mainland, which is like Fort Myers, and then Cape Coral to the north, and then you have a body of water called Matlache Pass, and then you have Pine Island. Um, which is the north and south cities are St. James City on the south, Bokele on the north, and then you have Sanibel and Captiva that everyone's heard of. Uh, the body of water right. in between Sanibel and Captiva and Pine Island is called Pine Island Sound. And it is uh, – there's no other fishery like it in the United States. Um, it, there is seagrass in there for days and days. Um, it's a thriving ecosystem. Um, it's not without its challenges. Um, you know, we can maybe touch on that a little bit, but, um, yeah. So when I started looking at, okay, where do I want to guide? Um, the one species that I absolutely had to have was redfish. Like I needed redfish, um, wherever. This is what I wanted to learn. Yeah. So I, I needed redfish. Now at the time I didn't necessarily realize that, uh, you know, the redfish that we fish for here in Pine Island Sound are bastards, and they're harder to catch than permanent bonefish. <laughs> uh, now, they're plentiful, and they're big, and you can see them because the water is clear, but man, are they hard to catch. So, had to have redfish. You know, Texas coast has redfish. South Carolina has redfish. South Carolina gets cold. Texas coast gets cold. Yeah, we nix those pretty quick. They're awesome places. Savannah, Georgia was another place that was on the list. Um, it was kind of like, it was kind of like, Houston, Austin, Savannah, maybe Charleston. Also expensive if you really want to live. Exactly, like exactly. In Savannah, you're you're talking big exactly. bucks. Exactly. So, you know, we kind of went through this. And I mean, we enjoyed the heck out of Savannah um, when we, we stopped there on Tybee Island for a couple of days. Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, phenomenal place. But it gets cold there. Um, it, like it, it really yeah. does. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's not St. Louis cold, but it, it gets cold there. It, I mean, and you're looking at like, uh, you know, maybe a eight or nine month season for fishing. So, you know, I yeah. wanted a place where I can guide 150 to 200 days and do it over 12 months. So, oh, cool. And, you know, uh, just the last three months, I think December, I did 10 guide trips. January, I did nine and I'll do 10 again in February. Um, and then, you know, so, yeah, from there. So that kind of puts you on your pace, right? So if you do a yeah, little yeah. bit more than that, 12, maybe some 15 months, then all of a sudden, well, bam, and that's coming. you're right where you and need to be. We'll get there in just a second. So, you know, the other thing, Southwest Florida, you know, in terms of inshore, um, fishing for snook, there is, it is the best fishing for snook on fly sight fishing like on flats and mangroves is the best like 
fishing for snook on the planet. Um, you know, all the way from, you know, Tampa, it, it's okay. As you go south from, you know, get below Sarasota, you know, and then, you know, so the, the north part of Pine Island Sound is Boca Grande, which everyone knows, you know, Gasparilla Island, Boca Grande, super famous tarpon place. Um, I don't fish it. I don't mess with it. Um, it's more of a bait kind of big boat thing. Um, but as you get farther south into Pine Island Sound and then down, you know, uh, the coast kind of gets peters out a little bit, you know, in terms of the backcountry. Um, once you get down to like Naples, but then south of Naples, Marco, down to um, yeah, the eastern edge of the Everglades, a city called Flamingo. Uh, from Boca Grande to Flamingo is the best inshore snook fishery on the planet. And if you haven't caught a snook, uh, and this applies to anyone listening, if you haven't caught a snook, it's a largemouth bass on steroids, uh, but they're spooky as all get out, um, especially the big ones. And when I say big ones, yeah, we casted a couple of snook today that were over 36 inches long. You know, so that's a that's like a 15 to 18 pound fish that when you hook it, I mean, it all they want to do is get in the mangroves, and yeah, you know, and they're really good at it too. So, yeah, you know, you're talking about you know an 18 pound fish on an eight weight. Uh, you know, on a, on a minnow that's maybe two or, you know, minnow, you know, like a little bait fish fly that's two or three inches long. And I mean, it, when you hook into a big one of those guys, I mean, it, you're in for a battle. So that's the second one now. And the third one and the one that pays the bills that, you know, it would be no surprise is tarpon. Um, so, you know, wanted snook or, uh, wanted, had to have redfish, wanted tarpon and, yeah, the snook has turned out to be a nice bonus. I honestly hadn't even caught a snook until we moved here. Um, I hadn't caught a snook until January of last year, and they're quickly becoming one of my favorite fish to target. Um, it's just they, it is so cool when you see one of those giant fish, like a, a thirty-six inch fish, slide out from the mangroves, and it looks like just a black log. You know, yeah, it, it starts as a shadow, and it's like, oh, that's moving. And it's like, oh, <laughs> that's its head. And then you're like looking back under the tree and you're like, oh, its tail's still way back there. You're like, oh, wow. Uh, I mean, they're just. So it's not the same experience as a redfish that's tailing and you're seeing from above the water. These things are way spookier down underneath. Kind of, sort of. Yeah, I'd say I, I think that's a fair thing. You know, And, I, and another thing um, that I've learned um, since I moved here, too. Um, that's a, and it's not something I guide, but it's a really unique thing. And once the water gets to about like 75 degrees here, um, it's no secret. Um, the, the snook move out on the beach and a lot of times, yeah, if you get calm winds, uh, yeah, you can fish for, and most of the the fish you're fishing for are going to be called, I don't know, 18 to 24 inches long. Um, but that's a really nice fish. Yeah. So, you know, for your, you know, your average trout fisherman, you know, that they're used to catching a 14 to 16, it's a nice fish. Nothing wrong with it. Um, but where you can go walk the beach with a six or a seven weight and catch a 24 inch snook. And literally if your feet are in the water, you're too far like out, you know, so like your feet are staying dry and you're walking the beach, just looking for these snook in the morning. And they're cruising that first trough uh, right along the shoreline. 
and they're just eating these itty bitty glass minnows that are an inch and a half, two inches long. Um, and you know, most of the fish you're fishing for are 18 to 24 inches, but you know, about once a day, you're seeing one that's in that, you know, 30 to 35 inch range. And then maybe every once in a while you're seeing, you know, one that's pushing 40. So it's a really unique thing in saltwater. You know, so much of saltwater fishing is, is like, you know, you need a boat to get to the spot, you know, whether you know, the bottom's muddy or, you know, it, it, it's, it's not unique to saltwater fishing, but the closer you are to the parking lot, the more hammered a spot gets, you know, it's just the way it is. You know? <laughs> where, where my parents live in South Carolina, there's an eight foot drop mm. in the tidal depth yep. on a daily basis. Yep. And when it drops, there's these unbelievable fields of, of seagrasses just with unbelievable little tidal yep. rivers that go back in yep. there that are just perfect for red fishing. And I can stand on their deck. They actually live on the water and I can stand on their deck and just look up and down this intercoastal waterway and see all these incredible places to fish, but I can't get to any of them because we don't have a boat there. And so, yeah, a most like 99.999% of the water is basically inaccessible yep. to and me. And if you tried to wait, I've got all the gear. Yeah. I've got a little bit of know-how. I can cast well enough, but I can't get to it. So yeah, I get you. Yeah, ya. and if you tried to wait it, you'd be in up to your waist in mud. You know, it's dangerous. Stuck. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's oh yeah, not safe. Like it, it, it yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's a cool thing that we have here in Southwest Florida that you can catch a quality fish. You know, it's a fish that people actually like. You know, they pay money to go out and catch. Um, you know, you're not just going. Yeah, and sharks are cool, but you're not. You know, just going out on the beach and catching a you know a random shark or whatever. Uh, right. You know, it's a fish that people want to catch. And it's something that we do. Like, I mean, I'll do it a few times a year, uh, you know, where I'll go, you know, I, I work in a fly shop here a couple of days a week and uh, I'll go in before work because there's a beach like 10 minutes down the road from the shop and I'll go in before work a couple of times a year and, you know, try to get a couple of snuggies. I mean, it, it's a fun thing to do. So super unique thing. But, you know, I mean, the big moneymaker and the big draw here and, uh, you know, honestly what people... Um, you know, pay 700 bucks a day to go fishing for his tarpon. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, it is what it is. And you know, one last thing on redfish, if I'm on the bow and I've got a rod in my hand and I got to catch one today and I freaking love every single one that I catch. Um, they are just such a cool fish. Uh, yeah. This one that I caught today, we were 150 yards you know, we're pushing into the back of this cove and there, there's no way out. It's just, you know, tides coming in. So the fish are kind of pushing into this cove and we see this big blow up and it's a fish chasing, you know, the, the water's high enough. They can get into the mangroves. Uh, but you know, they'll chase bait fish out of the mangroves kind of onto these flats. And we see this big blow up, you know, from 150 feet away and uh, it, it, probably even longer than that. Yeah, and we push up to it, and the fish had muddied up the water, you know, so bad that, like, you know, couldn't find the fish initially. And then I just caught, like, just a barely an outline of it and just, like, dumped a cast over to it, a um, couple of strips, and bam, he was on it. So, like, we saw that, and then we saw fish. We saw fish tailing. We saw fish, like, just sitting still on the bottom. Like everything about redfish, they are so visual, like the entire time, like everything about it. And like, you can catch them blind casting on the mangroves, but they are just such a visual fish because, you know, uh, and 
I compare them a lot to like permanent bonefish, but like permanent bones, like you see them on the flat and they're like, they're like spazzes. Like they're going so fast, like, and they're eating. Yeah. It's like boom, 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 boom. But like redfish, yeah. like, especially like a lot of the places that, it, that we target them. Yeah. They, they're just meandering and slow and chill. And, um, you know, our, our redfish here, man, I, they, they will test every single bit of skill that you have as an angler. Um, yeah, you've got to make a good cast. If you, if you let your line jump a little too far and you throw, I mean, a foot of slack in your line on your cast and you've got a minnow on and it's sinking down instead of like, as soon as you set it down, you strip and that fly's moving. If that fly doesn't move naturally, like those fish are like, I don't know, man. Like, and they're out of there. <laughs> and I mean, the cool thing. So, so Yeah. So let's, let's, and I apologize, but like, so curious is with how many of your clients that are coming and fishing with you have the skill to make those adjustments or is that more of like guides and guides fishing together really got to have it dialed in? So how many, like how many of the people that are coming and fishing with you aren't experienced anglers that are looking for like the next level up? So that's a great question. And I, so I, I, there's a couple different answers to that. Uh, so one of those is a place called Goodland, um, and we'll get into that. But the other one, you know, um, when I get somebody, especially on a half day for just one day, generally that person, um, and I, I hate to say this, and I think most other salt guides would agree with this, They're gonna, so like a half day is like a four to six hour trip they're going to kind of catch the fish that they came into the day with the skill having. Um, and it just, it, it is what it is. And I'm happy to take those folks and I'm going to show them a good time. And, you know, if we get to the point where we're trying to cast these fish um, and what, and every salt guide will echo this sentiment is we'll get people set up making blind casts on mangroves or whatever and they're making beautiful blind casts, and then you go to cast at a fish, and like they see a fish, and their nerves get the best of them, and their mechanics just fall apart. Um, and it breaks my heart because, like, I wish I could wave a magic wand um, and like have them make that cast they made just ten minutes ago at a blind, you know, blind cast. Like they hit this pocket perfectly in a mangrove like from 40 or 50 feet away. And it's like, if they can make that cast at a fish, like they're going to catch the fish, but it's something like you just, you can't prepare yourself for that moment until you're in the moment. So, you know, the people, so yeah. let's get technical yeah. for a second, Chris, let's get technical. Are they failing because they don't have good distance control? Are they failing because they're not used to changing directions and casting in multiple angles? Where are they failing? I to make that cast what what is their technical breakdown the fail it, it's not even a fail it's just a lack of experience it, okay. it, it's really and truly what it is um it's you know and I, I can point to permit that i've cast at and trout that have been actively rising that i've cast at and sometimes your nerves just get the best of you you know i mean it, it's uh you know take a, a sports example you say you played football you know, uh, quarterbacks records in their first playoff game, you know, their first ever playoff game, you know, is they have less than a, a like 200 winning percentage. 
in their first ever playoff game. You know, Peyton Manning went to the playoffs how many times before he made a Super Bowl? So, I mean, it's, right. it's, it's not a lack of ability. It's not a lack of want to. It's just a lack of experience. And, you know, the other thing that, um, you know, just the nature of the fly fishing world, 95% of it's like trout fishing. You know, whether you look at it in terms of time or dollars or whatever, most of it's trout fishing. And when you break it down into trout fishing, most of what people are doing is nymph fishing. And it's a great way to get a rod bent. And for a lot of people, it's a, it, it, that's as far as they take it. And they love it, and they have a lifetime of enjoyment with it, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, it, you know, whatever gets people into fishing, especially if they're doing it with friends or family or whatever, I'm all for the downside of that is that sort of fishing does not translate 0.0% of that translates to what, you know, any saltwater guide is going to ask somebody to do. Cause basically at its most elemental, what, what any saltwater guide is going to ask a client to do is to identify a fish in the water, figure out which way the figure out which end is the business end, you know, which ends the head, which ends the tail Put a fly in front of the head, you know, to where you don't spook it when it lands, and then strip the fly, and then not trout set, not jerk the rod up when the fish eats. Strip. Yeah, keep the rod down, strip set. I mean, that's what we're asking people to do. And so it's not, to go back to your original question, it's not a failure of ability. It's just a failure of experience. And so if you get a guy that calls in and says, Hey, I want to go fish with you. I can catch the shit out of smallmouth. You're like, all right, Ooh, I got I a like. guy that might. Yeah, well, because so what does smallmouth eat? Right. Do you ever put a, right. Do you ever put a bobber on for smallmouth? No, rarely. Right. It's popping. No, you're throwing streamers. You're throwing them right up against the banks. You got to be fairly precise yep. in where you put it. You're throwing up against structure. Yep. So you got to be over and around logs so it's different angles and a lot of times you're thrown out of a boat so it's a different it's it's probably more accurate or if you get a guy that's like dude all i do is go after big browns then you probably got a dude that knows more of what your kind of skill set's going to be a hundred percent yeah and i mean like for me that like the perfect the perfect client is somebody that you know is is a trout fisherman you know likes to fish dries likes to fish streamers um, so, you know, you're used to casting essentially a weightless thing on the end of the line. You know, some, some trout streamers can be heavy, but you're having to use the rod more than you're using the weight on the end of the line. And, you know, cause you know, I don't know from there, you know, it, it's going to make me look better. The first time I put somebody on a fish in the salt, you know, I mean, any salt, you know, anytime right, right. a saltwater guy takes somebody out in the salt for the first time and they put them on a tarpon or a snook or a redfish or a bone or whatever it is, you know, you're going to be that guy's guide for, you know, from there on. It's just the way, yeah. you know, I've got a guy that I, you know, the first permit that I ever caught in Belize and like, that's when I want to go permit fishing, that's it. I'm going to go fish with my guy, Yogi, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's in, for yeah, sure. And that's where, you know, this, you know, sport, hobby, lifestyle, whatever you want to call it. Um, as much as it's about the fish, it's about the people that do it. And that's what's so, so much fun is that, you know, and in the salt, that's just exacerbated too, because like, like I can go out on my boat by myself, but like, 
if I'm gonna fish by myself, like I'm either gonna have to stake out or get out and wade fish or have my trolling motor, which doesn't fucking work because I can't get close enough to the fish because it makes such a racket. You know, it, I mean, it, it, it's it, it's a team driven thing, and it's the same thing floating a river out west, uh, or you know, even on the rivers of Missouri. You know, you need one guy rowing and one guy fishing, and you know, here especially, like we talk about, like the boat caught this many fish. It's not, you know, it's not just the guy fishing. It's the guy pulling, it's the guy rowing, you know, it, it really is a team effort. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of actually transitions me into something that you and I have chatted a little bit uh, that I know is like an added component of being a guide in the salt, right? Because, you know, I know on certain rivers, like you can go out and buy a $3,500 drift boat, like a, you know, a, a pretty simple mm, raft or, yep. a, you know, a, a used Rio or something like that. And you're out there, you're a guide, right? On the salt, that's not the case. Like you've got to have some pretty legit equipment. Yep. I know you've gone through an equipment failure <laughs> recently. Yes. You obviously just talked about your trolling motor being a little bit of a bane of your yeah, existence. Yeah, not- Talk a little bit. I know that your website talks a little bit about you being a gear junkie, yep. which I'm a gear yep. guy too. So talk to me a little bit about your boat and kind of what that means and why that's such an important part of your operation and, and why that adds such a component to being a salt guy. No, a hundred percent. And, uh, so the boat that I have, um, I, I love the boat that I have. It's a 17, uh, V, uh, 12 degree boat, um, which, you know, so 12 degree boat means if you were to set the absolute keel of the boat on a flat piece of ground, it's going to be that angle of the hull versus the bottom below it. So it's a 12 degree angle, um, which you know, most people call a, a V hull. But flats boats generally fall somewhere between a two degree boat um, and a 12 degree boat. Uh, yeah. Gotcha. So you've got one of the more extreme bottoms. Yeah. Then. So the, what the 12 and the, the hull that I have, Maverick. Um, has been around for a long, long time. Um, they started making boats, I think in the eighties and now they're part of a larger company that they make a bunch of different boats, but you know, sure. um, Maverick as it is today, they make three different hulls. They make the HPXS, uh, the HPXV and they do the V and 17 and 18 foot. Um, so I have the 17 foot boat. It is a good, not great boat. Um, is the way I describe it, is it doesn't do anything great, but it does everything good enough. Um, so I can, with three adults and a cooler full of beer, uh, we can float in 10 inches of water. Um, yeah. What about when you add a couple of dogs to that? <laughs> they don't do too much. Yeah, once you get it pretty fully loaded, um, yeah, it, it's crazy. Like the difference between, now, honestly, there's times where I can float skinnier with three people in the boat than with uh, just two people in the boat. Uh, Interesting. Like, yeah, like my wife and I are going to go fishing in the morning and she's not a very big person. So when you put my fat ass back on the pulling platform and she's up front, um, it would honestly be better if we had somebody sitting in the middle of the boat to bring a little more weight Gotcha. Forward. That makes yeah, sense. So gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I was sitting there going, I was like, how the hell does this buoyancy yeah, exactly. But that makes sense yeah, now. Yeah, so. Because it's, yeah, okay, I there's gotcha. There's so much stuff in the salt that it's like the exact inverse of what you would think it is. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's the boat. Uh, my hole is a 97. Um, it's all fiberglass and foam. Uh, these boats are made to last. 
Um, I paid $20,000 for it. Um, It came with an old two-stroke motor, and we can get into the motor story here in a second. But, um, you know, my boat in particular, everything in my boat is designed with 65-year-old man that's not great on his feet, you know, to be in the boat. Because that's who can afford to pay $700 to go fishing. And, you know, as a kind of aside, I wish some of this stuff, like, were more accessible in terms of like, you know, a financial aspect, but it is what it is. Like, I'm not doing this out of the good of my heart. I'm trying to make a living and that's what the clientele is. Unfortunately, it just, it is what it is. Um, Now there's a lot of different ways that people could get into it with kayaks and paddle boards and so on and so forth. And, you know, cheaper skiffs and, and whatnot. But, you know, in terms of like, you know, a, a boat. I need something that's going to be reliable. I need something that's going to eat chop. And, you know, honestly, kind of third for me is like get skinny, you know, um, you know, every boat can get stuck. It doesn't matter, you know, how skinny the boat can get, you can still get stuck, right. especially down here. Uh, you know, and oftentimes like, you know, where we guide, you know, in the keys, they're fishing a lot of like open water, um, and a lot of fisheries are fishing like a lot of open water. You mentioned South Carolina. Yeah, they have the super drastic tide swings there. Um, yeah, for us, we don't have, to a lot of people, they don't seem drastic. Like right now, I think we're having maybe a two-foot tide swing. Um, and in the wintertime, like we fish a lot of incoming tides because we get negative tides. And in the, in the wintertime, the water gets super, super low. Um, so we fish a lot of incoming tides. Um, but the bulk of the year, you know, eight months out of the year, we're generally targeting outgoing tides here, uh, because our habitat is dominated by red mangroves. Um, and that's where the fish want to be. They want to be in the mangroves. Um, and when the water's high, that's where they go. You can be on a flat that like, you know, the day before you're there on an outgoing tide and everything's sucked out of the mangroves. And you go back the next day, first thing in the morning, the water's still high or still incoming. There's not a damn thing on the flat because everything's in the mangroves. And, you know, it may not sound like, yeah, if you're from the Northeast or, you know, I'm not, I have no idea what freaking Pacific tides even do. But, um, you know, if you're from the East Coast, um, you know, a two and a half foot tide swing may not seem like a ton, but, yeah, that's huge for us. Uh, because not huge for us in like size, but yeah, it draws all the fish out of the mangroves and puts them in a place where we can get them with a fly rod. Um, yeah, the water can be, you know, so pushed up into the mangroves. You can't even get these fish out of there with bait because they've got such a smorgasbord of stuff and you'll hear stuff pop, 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 like back in the mangroves when the water's high and it's like, man, there's nothing we can do about that. But we've got tarpon around for that. So, um, yeah, right. With, uh, you know, the the short story with that is you know i mean a boat that drafts you know there's boats out there that draft six inches you know that's four inches better than mine but you know it gets you maybe 30 minutes in a spot um you know and you're still gonna get stuck uh so like i mean and and those boats are gonna be way more not tippy but, um, yeah, they're definitely more unsteady than, than my boat. And like I said, everything in my boat is designed with like 65 year old man. That's not good on his feet in mind. So 
Yeah, that that's a. And would you say how how much of your clientele is that sixty five year old man, and how much of it is guys your age that travel in from all over the place that are really in their like their week of fishing, fish like like our buddy Jack. Yeah, right? came yeah. Down, so caught a, a trophy redfish, got, beautiful he, he photo. Really nice I want to talk about the f- photography later, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, you know how many guys are like Jack that are coming in that are like super fishy dudes, and how many of them are. You know, sixty-five-year-old dad that's just like hanging out, wanting to have a good day on the on the. No, water. I mean, so that's a great question, and that's another thing. Like, if somebody is thinking about, uh, and it's one thing that I think really differentiates the kind of salt guys from the western trout guys. Most western trout guys, they're going to work for some sort of outfitter. Um, they're not going to just go out there and like you know hang a shingle, so to speak, and start getting business. You're right. going to work for somebody else. And they're going to tell you, hey, show up. Here's your clients for the day. When you go to do it in the salt, like you are, you are your own, you know, one person business. You are, you are the janitor. You are the maintenance guy. You are, you know, you're the CEO. You're the bookkeeper. Is that, Chris, is, is that more because of this was something that I was interested or, or, or was fascinated to learn was that with, um, the Western stuff, a lot of that is dictated by the way that their permitting works. Oh, it's laws. And the way yeah, that, sure. Right, it's yep. laws. So in, in Florida, that's just specifically different where a lot of it is driven more by individual permits. It's not as, you know, kind of forced down the outfitter route. Is that 100%, accurate? yeah. And uh, so like I, I have my like captain's license through the United States Coast Guard. Um, and I, yeah, so- how difficult was that process? You know, it, it doesn't seem like it's a hop, skip and a jump. I mean, it seems like there's some legit stuff yeah, you got to do. I mean, it, uh, it, the, the, te- it's a lot of stuff that you ha- would have no reason to have. It's a lot of information you would have no reason to have in your brain except for getting that license. Um, so it's just, it's a lot of new information. Um, and I, I, I mean, Honestly, getting the license itself is not that much harder than like getting a good score on the SAT. Like there's companies out there that'll kind of hold your hand through the process. Um, Yeah. So it's kind of honestly akin to getting your law license. Like getting your law license is eh, maybe a little more difficult. It's a little more expensive, but you would be astounded. (laughs) Like any lawyer... The similarities that passes the bar and tells you that they're going to try a case like the day after they get their law license, you know, they're committing malpractice on the spot. And I have a, I have a buddy that went through law school and is a, you know, has a practicing law degree. And he basically told me that your, your degree in law doesn't teach you how to practice law. It teaches you how to pass the bar. You then go and learn how to be a lawyer by doing your clerkship and doing all of your, you know, other work and all that kind yep. of stuff and then spending time as an associate and all those kinds of yep. things. So, yeah, he was very clear on like you basically just learn how to pass the yep. bar. Yep. So, um, yeah, going back to the question, like if you're going to do something like be an independent guide, whether and, and there's some states like Wyoming, you can be kind of more of an independent guide. Arkansas, you can be kind of more of an independent guide. Um, any Anywhere in the salt, you're going to be on your own. You got to figure out how are you going to get business? Yeah. So 
Chronicles? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question yeah. that I was really interested to talk to you about because I think you do a really good job on the photography side of things. Your Instagram is really sharp. You do Thank a you. really good job with kind of like the visual and being a, a, a social media guy. So I'm always curious, like how much of your time you spend taking photos, editing photos, making sure that clients are getting photos, sure. building your yep. website. Like how much of the job is that stuff? You know, it's fortunately, there's a lot of tools out there that make that a lot easier than it, it is. And, um, you know, so the, the camera I shoot with, I shoot with a Nikon Z5 mirrorless. It, it's by no means, it's not the like top of the line. Um, most things in life, I am very uh, like process oriented with, um, with photography and food. All I care about is end result. Um so like I use a Traeger grill, which a lot of people think is cheating. I use a mirrorless camera, which a lot of people think is cheating. I don't give a shit because like you said, I just want the nice product at the end to be able to give to my customer. Um, like I posted some pictures today. I think I, I pulled them off my camera and we shot like 40 photos. I think I posted six. Uh, the whole process took 20 minutes. And, you know, but like, there's a lot more time that goes into, okay, like what are the right meters? Um, I did a really cool, um, course with the guys from yellow dog, um, travel. Um, so shout out Jim yeah. and Brian Gregson, uh, two amazing outdoor and fishing specific, uh, photographers, um, down in Belize. They have a great them. podcast too. They do waypoints podcast. Yep. Check it out for sure. They're, they did one, uh, with a fellow that guides in the Yellowstone backcountry recently that I, 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 it was absolutely incredible. It's fantastic. It's a really Super. cool episode. I was just listening to it. Shout out. Yeah, I, I think Shane McClanahan or something like that was the guy's name. Phenomenal. Yeah. But anyway, um, I learned a ton from those guys and you're right. It, it, that is like, part of the process anymore is like providing clients with those photos. Like it sounds silly, but, um, you know, when you take a day that's like, I charge 500 or $700 and like memories are great. But when you've got a photo that like you, you paid that money and you worked your ass off to get a fish and, you know, then you're at home and, you know, with your buddies, you know, on the golf course or, you know, at your local fly shop or whatever. And, they can pull out their phone and show them a photo that's not an iPhone photo because everybody obviously has an iPhone and they take great photos now. Like they, they absolutely do. But like they, they could show them a photo and be like, yo, this my guide, Chris, sent me this photo. Like, look at this. Like, you know, and, you know, they show them that. And dude, it, 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 it sounds stupid, but like it's as much it like that's almost as important as them catching the fish itself. Because like that's how they package so their memory. We'll, yeah, so we'll kind of wind uh, the episode, and I want to go kind of do a part sure. two episode with you and Becca on Idaho because it's kind of funny. Sarah and I, my wife, were sitting around the other night, like planning our route through California and up through Oregon and Washington, Montana down to Wyoming, and then back through Idaho, and kind of curly queuing back up into Oregon again. And we're going to literally be going right past the South oh, Fork no Lodge, like nice. right through there from Yellowstone and around. And I was like, all right, I got to ask Chris about lots yeah, of different yeah, places yeah. to go and cool places to adventure. So I want to do that part two episode, but I also don't want to take your entire evening tonight. I know you and Becca have a day of oh, fishing tomorrow and you got a trip coming up. Yep. So all that stuff. So 
I do want to kind of wind up on our shared passion for yeah. Tim Hargrove. And it's kind of funny that you talk about the photography side of things, because I think it, it, this is where that manifests itself. Jack printed a really high quality version of mm -hmm. that photo and brought it nice. into the shop. And now that lives yep. in the shop and is forever a part of the wall of memories of incredible fish that have been caught around the country that show off what this place kind of fosters and continues to grow and, and allow for. That's what those photographs mean to yep. people is that they literally print them out. They take them to their favorite places. They make them part of yep. that place. And I know T Hargroves is really special to you. Why is that place so magnetic and what is it? Why does it draw you in? Why do you want to bring your wife there when you, when you come back into town and bring food and cook for people? Like, what is it about that place that's so special to you? Cause I know what it means to me, but I'm curious. What I it mean, means I grew people. up in there. I, I took fly tying class at, uh, at Tom's shop from a guy named Jimmy Oshiro when I was 12 years old. And just to give you an idea of how much fly fishing in general has changed. So uh, I was 12 years old. I was in the sixth grade when we took the fly tying class and it was on Tuesday or Thursday. Now I forget what it was, but yeah, to give you an idea of how much this has changed. Yeah. And yeah, a lot of people don't realize this. And I, yeah, we've got some young kids that work at the shop here in, in Bonita Springs. Uh, when I was 12 years old, I was embarrassed to tell my friends what I was doing on those nights that I was going to fly tying class. Right? No way. Like, and that's the response people get now. And what I tell them is that, like, it's not just me, but it's like, it's guys like me and guys that are a little bit older, you know, I mean, you know, some of these guys that have made like a career and a name for themselves, like, you know, the guys like at Yellow Dog and Carter Andrews and Oliver White, you know, and, you know, all these different guys that like, they made it something that is cool and accessible for people. So, you know, I, I literally grew up in that place. And like the trips that I've done with the guys there, you know, getting to know Tom, um, you know, I started working there when it's actually funny. I worked, my first job in a fly shop was working out in Idaho. I worked out in Idaho before Tom would even hire me. So like, and I think it's hiring. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to yeah, tell no, no, you said no, that. No, 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 no. They're, they're, they're doing great. And there have been some like no, great yeah. and like super talented anglers uh, that have come through that shop, uh, both, you know, customers. Yeah. And the, the line between customer and friend is like, it, 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 it gets blurred, you know, it, as soon as you crack your first beer in the shop, you know, it, it, it does. And, you know, just working there over the years, you know, um, when, uh, maybe, uh, in two or three years, you know, actually kind of Craig's first trip, you know, he now takes a trip out West every year. But I think his first two or three um, were coming out to the lodge to, you know, yeah. Oh, so cool. I, you know, him and I kind of got that ball rolling, you know, and Larry Hurt, Dave Beatty, and, you know, all these different characters that, you know, yeah, yeah, I lo baby. love the Big Hurt. Yeah. So the Big Hurt actually netted, um, and, and this, this is maybe a good story to, to end on. Uh, yeah, we yeah. were fishing uh, on the North Fork of the White. Um, I would bring my drift boat back every year. Uh, and uh, we were fishing down there. I think it was on March 1st. So the anniversary is coming up here pretty soon. And 
I don't tape fish ever. I, I just, I generally don't care. Um, I'm really bad at it. Um, I did it for a long time in Idaho and people were like, Oh, how long is that cut there? And I'd be like, oh, it's 17. And they'd be like, are you sure? How do you yeah. know? I don't know. I've seen a bunch of them. Like most of them are about like 16 or 17 inches. Like, like can yeah, we exactly. Yeah. A painter can tell yeah, you what exactly. color that is. It's the exact same thing. I've seen you. Yeah, I've seen a lot of 17 inches. How'd you know that? I told you I've seen it before, but so well, yeah. and it, this is in March and it is cold, like cold, cold. Like we're chipping ice on guides. Like when we're launching in the morning, and uh, we were catching some good fish. I mean, I, I think it maybe got up in the 40s. And um, have you floated that river before? You know, the spot called? I have. And I got a buddy who keeps trying to drag me down there. And I've been stupid not to do it. And now we're going to be buzzing out of town. And I'm afraid. Yeah, I'm I mean, at some it. point, you got to go see Brian and Steph down at Sunburst. And um, we're, we're, they're coming on the podcast. I've gotten to meet them. Nice. They're fantastic people. I really look forward to going down there. I'm going to be taking some trips back good, to St. Good. Louis after we leave. I've got business obligations here. So I'm going to be coming back throughout the summer. And I'm really hoping to go down and spend some time at the ranch because it seems like an absolutely gorgeous place and the work they put into it just seems yeah, like it's it, it, fantastic. It it, so I yeah, look forward and, to it. And they're great folks. And I, I'm guiding Brian's dad Dave week after next or something. So anyway, so oh, cool. we're, we're floating there and, uh, uh Good yeah, great guys. Um, uh, and we get to the spot called the falls and it was like kind of one of those things like I, back in my younger days, um, you know, I, I kind of had some goals in mind of like fish I kind of wanted to catch. Now I just, you know, whatever. I, I try to catch one fish a month now. If I get one a month, I'm yeah. stoked, you know. It makes all 12. Yeah, if you get 12 in a year, you only catch 12 fish and they're all in the salt. makes them all pretty memorable. You know, you can. Yeah, yeah you know, for sure. <laughs> it's yeah, a good approach. Um, you know, I mean, I'm 36. I've caught a lifetime worth of fish. I don't need to catch anymore. Uh, I mean, it's true. Like I'm fortunate in that regard. Like, yeah, no, that's a great yeah, way to look uh, at it, man. It's gratitude. It's uh, awesome. But it's a good so, way to go I through mean, life. This is still one of my probably maybe the favorite fish I've ever caught. But we're at the falls, and I had two Pat's rubber legs that had thirty-five thousandths lead that I'd tied like wrapped around, you know, heavy, heavy, and three split shots. Three split shot, and there's a plunge pool right at the top of this thing, and. Um, Craig was actually the one that kind of showed me how to fish it. And I know you've interviewed Craig before and we all love Craig. Um, it, He's the, the best. best. Um, and he was the one that actually kind of showed me how to fish the spot. Um, not, not even intentionally. I just watched him fishing. I was like, hmm, interesting. Yeah. And he caught like a 20 inch rainbow. And I was like, cool. Like, I think I could do that. Um, so I did. And I hooked this fish and it like, I hooked it and it was like one of the, it like, it like swam right to my feet at first. And I'm like, Oh, like this fish doesn't even know what's happening right now. And, and then it kind of like swirled right at the base of the falls and then fricking took off. And we got pictures of the whole thing. And there's a, there's a picture, you, you know, going back to your point about like the pictures on the wall, we had, we have actually like, was it just some old, what at Pentax, like uh, underwater camera, but you know, yeah. if there's one fish in my life that I would have wish I would have taped, it's that fish because I know it was over 30 inches. And wow. this is not, this is not, you know, 
Tanny Como. This isn't the White River. This isn't the Norfolk, you know, in Arkansas. This is the North Fork of the White in Missouri. So, yes, it's a stocked fish. Yes, I get that. But that fish was stocked at about 10 inches long. And it's probably 8 to 10 years old when I catch it. Yeah, that's and, an old fish. I mean, it, it, it's the only fish in my life I wish I would have taped because I'm never going to say that I've caught a 30-inch trout before because that's like that's the mark, right? You know, there, there's 20 right. inches, then there's 24, and once you hit 24, it's 30. You know, it's it's the biggest yeah. jump. And, you know, I mean, yeah. it, it is, you know. And, uh, you know, anytime somebody catches a 30-inch or somebody tells me they caught a 30-inch trout, they're like, oh, they come out of a lake, you know. But, you know, because really what you want is a stream, you know, a, a fish that lived in a river that grew to 30 inches. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's it, impressive. It's, it's Anybody that trout fishes, it's ultimately what they're going for. And I know that was it, but I never taped it. We taped it actually. Actually, that's not true. We taped it to its adipose fin at 28 inches. So, Ooh. you know... Yeah, I think you're safe. I think you're safe. But, you know. Well, let's finish with this, Chris. We just talked about one fly shop. I know that you work at another 239 Flies there in Southwest Florida. Let's talk a little bit about that fly shop, what makes it a great place to work, what kind of attracted you to it, and then we'll kind of wind it up there. But I definitely want to give those Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, so Nick and Jim, um, and to anybody that's out there thinking of starting a fly shop, um, you know, Here's kind of Nick's story, and it, he's told it on podcasts before, but he started tying, um, Nick is a firefighter, and uh, you know, definitely shout out to all the first responders out there, but uh, like every firefighter, he started a side hustle, and his side hustle was tying flies while he was on shift at the fire department. Uh, yeah, Clever. and he was tying custom flies, which is a very young man's game. Um, you know, it is really, really hard, um, to sell flies for 90 bucks for a half dozen. Um, because yeah, it's easy to tie six, but when you have an order for 600, you know, or, you know, you have 60, you know, orders for 10 flies or whatever. It, yeah, you never want to do something like that enough that it makes you hate it. (laughs) Um, and, uh, so, but that's how he got his start is he started tying custom flies and, you know, he has some phenomenal patterns. They're all on the website, 239flies.com. Um, yeah, and we still sell kits for it. So he wanted to start selling these kits, um, to, you know, to be able to, you know, like people would be like, Oh, you know, I bought your flies. I liked them. I'm tying my own flies. Can I buy the materials? Like I like the fly. Don't want to yeah. pay 90 bucks. Totally reasonable. Right. You know, I mean, $50 sure. a fly is tough. Yeah, you hang in the mangrove, man. Yeah. You're you're angry, um, and so he hollered at uh, like uh, Hairline and Wapsy, you know the big fly tying companies, and they were like, "Yeah, well, we're happy to sell you stuff, but you got to have a brick and mortar shop." And he was like, "Well, that's kind of fucked up because you guys sell your stuff online." Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. But it, it, so he he did it. You know, he they uh, found a little retail space, and uh, you know. They had a couple of captains, uh, you know, one of whom's become a good friend of mine, uh, Evan Deponin. Um, and, uh, you know, they did two years in like this 800 square foot space. And then a spot that I think we're in like 1800 square feet now. Um, it's on an end cap on Bonita Beach Road. Um, 
in between Bonita Springs and uh, Bonita Beach, uh, right by Lover's Key State Park. Just, you know, some places people are kind of familiar with if you've been to Southwest Florida. Sure. Um, they moved into there, and, I mean, it, it's just a phenomenal place. I mean, so kind of the, the main point about Nick, though, is, like, he went about it the right way. You know, he he literally, like, bootstrapped this whole thing you know, just his passion for tying flies and like that, you yeah. know, even though like, I mean, his, like it, his still, his job is being a firefighter, you know, he's, he's a yeah, firefighter, yeah. you know, his station is the Fort Myers airport. Um, so they're not the busiest, but you know, when something goes wrong, you know, you got a freaking jet plane on fire, you know, shout out exactly, to those guys, right? good Lord. You know? dudes that's yeah, wild so, you know they're not very busy but when they got a freaking work man you know you're thankful for those guys yeah um, for sure you know so i mean that, that uh i mean that's the way to do it though is like you know i think a lot of you know i just i've seen as fly fishing has gotten more and more popular you know since we graduated from you know where a 12 year old kid is like embarrassed to tell his friends that he's going to tie flies with his dad on a tuesday night to you know, what it is now, you know, people, you know, they want to get into it and get the clout and get the sponsorships and the, this and the, that and the, whatever. It's gotten sexy. But but if you want to make a living of it and you want to make a go of it, like Nick's doing the same fucking stuff that Tom did, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah, he really is. He's got a passion for it. Every person that comes in there that he's met before, he knows them by name. Um, and, you know, his brother Jim manages the day-to-day stuff now, and Jim is the exact same way. And it's, I mean, it's like so many other businesses. It's just a people business, you know. It's um, that's awesome. Yeah, you got to have a passion for fishing, and you you really have to have like a passion for people because it's a people business, you know. Um, that that's really what it is, and you know it. So it, it's been a nice fit for me. Um, I had no idea that I was even, uh, when we moved down here, I knew I was going to be guiding, but I had no idea. You know, I, I, I'd actually bought stuff from them before when I lived out in Idaho. Um, had, had oh, bought, you know, you know, said so they built the kind of kits to tie the flies. Um, I'd actually bought a couple of their kits when I lived in Idaho for a trip that I did to Texas, you know, when, uh, and caught flies on the, you know, the, yeah, but I, which is super cool. cool. And I told them that story when they interviewed yeah, me. What a great yeah. story! Way to bring it back around. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah. That's super and cool. So they were like, "Oh no, shit! That's wild. That's cool." Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, that's what makes this whole freaking world go round. It, uh, I mean, it, as much as it's about the fish, it's about the places you go, and but mostly it's about the people that you spend your time with while you're there. I couldn't agree with you more, man, and I appreciate it. We'll wrap it up there. Chris, I hope we get to do another episode and bring Becca in yep. and get to talk more about the adventure yeah, think- in uh, in Idaho and her brewery and all the cool stuff that you guys do away from fly fishing. But I appreciate your time this evening. Fantastic information for everybody out there. Uh, Chris Captain with Morning Dew Fishing Company. Chris, how do they find you if somebody wants to book a trip with you or just get more information? Yeah, on your so my company? website is uh, it's uh, mdfishco.com. Uh, Instagram is cmconant. Uh, those are probably the two best ways to get a hold of me. Um, yeah, and happy to answer any questions you have. You, you don't have to book a trip to reach out to me. Uh, yeah. It, uh, I just, I want to help people get better at this. It, it, you know, whether you're trout fishing, saltwater fishing, whatever, fly tying, if you've got a question, you know, I, 
I relied on so many people like when I was getting, you know, getting to where I am now. Um, and that's just the way it goes. So I'm happy to help in any way I can. I'll tell you what, you uh, you buck the reputation of a lot of saltwater guides that take on the uh, reputation of being ornery and maybe unapproachable. So I really appreciate you extending that kindness to uh, the audience that's out there and anybody that may hear this down the road that makes a lot of difference, man. I really appreciate it. You're the best, man. All right, that's going to stop. We're all good. Do me a favor, man. Just leave that browser 